This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares, and I'm joined this week by Laura and Ryan from AJ Bell. Hi there. Hello. So we've got loads of stuff to cover this week. We're going to talk about the future of property funds, how news of shops reopening has boosted markets, why we're all paying less tax, fund managers who are thinking about the future, one type of holiday that's been extended, and also a company that's trying to make things better for investors. Wow, that is a lot. I feel like we need to get cracking. Right. We've had big news in the past week that shops will be able to start reopening from next month. But obviously, with some restrictions in place to protect shoppers and workers and and some shops won't open. But Dan, markets really like this news, didn't they? Well, definitely. In 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 terms of just looking at the the UK stock market, anything that's sort of consumer facing uh, went absolutely crazy um, after the back of this news. So, obviously, the guidance from the government is that um, sort of market stalls and car showrooms will be able to open on the first of June, and then non-essential shops will reopen on the fifteenth of June. And I kind of think this is what people have been wanted. They they, they want more steps that were coming out of lockdown. So we've got this clarity now that um, essentially that you know, shops are going to be open, the tills are going to be ringing, hopefully, and it will sort of help um, avoid this catastrophic effect to the economy. So I think if you, if you look at some of the stocks, um, the, it, it expands more than simply just retailers. So and anything that really involves um, consumers uh, potentially spending money were affected. So the, the, the travel company TUI, that is up nearly 90% in just a few days, which was... You know, wow. Just on the hopes that the travel industry might be able to start opening soon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, and you've got pubs and restaurants um so for example mitch's and butler was up 26 percent in a day so for all those people who are yearning to to eat all they can from the the salad buffet at harvester um you know <laughs> clearly clearly the investors in that company that owns harvester mitchell's and butler's are you know becoming even more confident that things will return to normal uh you've got some easy jet was up nearly 20 percent the same for Cineworld, um hollywood bowl that was up nearly 14 percent so i can say it was all, all these companies have actually been you know they're badly sold down over the last couple of months as people really worried about what would happen to them. Um, but now, you know, they're bouncing back fast, but we'll see. I mean, it's, it's, it's now a case of how will these sort of leisure attractions and shops cope with the new normal life? So, I mean, I don't know, Laura, have you, 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 how do you think that these shops will, will be able to operate on a day-to-day basis? Well, there's just a lot of uncertainty about whether people will actually want to go out to physical shops and buy stuff, isn't there? Because... Lots of people have now got used to buying stuff online and realised that most of the things they can get fairly conveniently online. So how much are people really going to want to go and queue up um, and go into a busy shop with other people? I don't know. I'm not sure if I can see it. I think I would do it for things where I definitely couldn't buy online or didn't want to buy online. Um, But otherwise, I feel like lots of people might just stick to online buying, don't you think? 
Yeah. Haven't we just learned that we can buy everything online anyway? Uh, my poor Amazon delivery driver will probably be welcome some kind of respite from this. Um, <laughs> you know, especially trying to shop for my wife's birthday and, and thinking, what can I buy on Amazon? And discovering it's absolutely everything. I've, I've got no desire to ever go to a shop again. Wow, bold statement. I do miss browsing, which I was never really a big shopper anyway, but I do miss the like... Oh, it's someone's birthday. I'm going to go and wander around a shop and get some inspiration rather than having to know exactly what you're going to buy. Uh, and there lies a difference between many men and many women in their shopping <laughs> habits. I suspect that sounds like my worst nightmare. <laughs> no, I know what you mean because it. I, I, when it comes to clothes shopping, I like to go once a year and do do it all in one go. But the idea of you know, I'd be happy to queue up for my turn to go into say one or two shops. But if you've got you know a whole day of that. I'm not sure people are going to be or have the patience, really. No, my tolerance for that would end after about an hour, I think. Yeah, but I was just I was reading some stuff before we sort of recorded this podcast about if you want to go to a shop and try on some shoes, then those pair that you've touched are then quarantined for 24 hours. And if you want to return some clothes to some shops, the, the, the shops will have to sort of store them away untouched for 72 hours. It, it sounds like a massive headache if you're going to be a retailer having to deal with all these extra things. And lots of them are saying that with those extra costs and the costs of implementing social distancing in the shop and limiting the number of people and the uncertainty about how many people are actually going to go out and shop, they're not certain that they can actually make enough profit to pay their staff and cover their costs, most of whom are probably furloughed at the moment anyway, um, to make it worthwhile opening. You actually make an interesting point, Laura. I was talking to a fund manager today um, who was saying that they fully expect companies' uh, losses to actually accelerate as we go into the reopening. Uh, For exactly that point, many of their staff have been furloughed uh, and so they're not having to pay the wages. But as soon as they start reopening, uh, they have to pick up more of the costs uh, of running their business, but actually that isn't going to be offset by by a significant pickup in sales. So they fully expect losses to get worse before they get better. God, it's yes. a gloomy start to the podcast, isn't it? Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> but Dan, it's not all rosy online either, is it? Because hasn't Boohoo been, which is the online clothes retailer that's done quite well out of this so far, hasn't that been the subject of some bad news this week? Or? Yeah, it's come under fire from a hedge fund called Shadowfall, which sounds a bit like a James Bond film, doesn't it? So it it's, has. Um, <laughs> so they've, they've come and accused Boohoo of misleading investors about profits and cash flow um, so boohoo's been a real success story on the stock market and in in the last few weeks its shares have hit a new record high so it, it's it, in one way it, it perhaps was an easy target for someone to come and start making accusations so one of the key things here is that um, this hedge fund is sort of alleging that boohoo's been overstating the profitability of, of one of its subsidiaries called Pretty Little Thing. But you know, Boohoo only owns two thirds of this business um, and it's got the right to buy the rest of it. Um, and it should potentially could cost it a billion pounds, according to um, this hedge fund. So this isn't re- this is not new news. This is already we've known about this for ages. Um, but I think what they're, they're sort of, they've issued this massive report um, just talking about the potential cash demands on the business and also suggesting that Pretty Little Thing hasn't really been paying Boohoo enough for 
distribution and administration sort of services as well. So it, it, it's you know you, you can find this freely available on online this report and you, you know, go and read it. But it, it is not um, it's not a quick read. Basically, but I think the thing the one thing that you, you really should um, consider in these situations is when when you get these so called bear raids, um, it's when you've got an outfit who's done lots of research, but actually what they want to do, they want to profit from the share price falling. Um, so it's in their own interest to, to try and make it sound as um, sensational as possible. But, but at the end of the day, quite a lot of these sort of negative reports have subsequently unearthed issues, negative issues within companies. So I do think they're always worth looking at and, and giving it a, a lot of thought about what the things that they're, they're trying to say. And has it had a big impact on the share price then? It, no, well, in relative terms to normally what happens are these, normally you'd see on a, these so-called bear raises, a good 20, 30% fall when these reports come out. It's not done that. It's done a small amount and the, the subsequent day of trading has it's fallen a little bit more. Um, but really it's, it's how it's broken. Numis has come out and said uh, the report doesn't really bring to light any new information that cause for concern and um, and Boohoo have issued a response as well. But really, uh, I, I say a lot, a lot of the issues are, aren't really new news if you if you follow the company. But um, definitely worth one to watch in the coming weeks, though. And so, in terms of um, other news that we've seen, there's some eye-opening figures from the amount of tax the government's collecting. So, Laura, you've been looking into that. Yeah, and this sounds a bit boring. I think, I mean, tax always sounds a little bit boring, doesn't it? But um, I think it's interesting. We've talked a bit on the podcast before about not only the current crisis now, but kind of how we make our way out of this as a country and, and the cost of it to individuals and the economy. And we had the first kind of glimmer of that where um, HMRC, which collects all the tax, has to report how much tax it's collected each month. And so the figures came out for April last week and it shows that there was a 42% fall in the tax that it collected during April when you compare it to a year previously. So... If you think about that, there's obviously a massive amount of money. And a lot of that is because staff are furloughed. Um, and so income tax receipts and national insurance receipts have fallen um, because people are earning less money. Um, people are either furloughed or have been laid off. Um, fewer people are paying income tax. And so the government's collecting less of that. Another big contributor was VAT receipts. Um, so they actually fell by 107%. Uh, but that's because the government has a deferral scheme in place where you don't have to pay your VAT due now. You can defer it in the future to help businesses with their cash flow. So that one's perhaps a bit more of a temporary one or harder to read what the real figures will be. But there's a, lo entire industries that have closed down um, that means taxes specific to those industries aren't being collected. So you have things like um, the air passenger duty tax, which is a tax that we all pay and gets rolled into airline tickets. Um, and obviously that's plummeted because no one's booking airline tickets. Uh, so that's fallen by 90% when you compare it to April last year. Um, and other things like beer duties have fallen by about 70% because pubs and restaurants have shut their doors and so they're not selling beer, so that tax isn't being collected. 
Um, and the property market, which we've talked about on the podcast before, has stalled. So there was a 43% fall in the stamp duty that was collected. So I think everyone would have expected that the government was going to collect less tax. But I think it's interesting to see actually the extent of it in some areas um, and kind of how much it's all fallen by as a first glimmer. Yeah, so I guess does this point towards the government's going to have to do something quite drastic in terms of putting up taxes to try and claw back this lost income? Well, exactly. It's got to be paid somehow. So already we've got... um, So things like the coronavirus job retention scheme, the government says that it's spent more than five billion on that so far. And we've got various of these kind of different schemes or government support mechanisms. But then you've got that coupled with the fact that you've got a lower base of tax collection as well. So you've got more money being spent and less money coming in, which is not a calculation any accountant would like to do at any business. So there's a big gap, basically, and, and somehow that's got to be paid for. And we talked previously about some of the ways maybe that could be paid, but at the moment, I think we, we don't really know. It's also that difference between deferred spend and um, uh, and, and a spend that's, that's never going to happen. You know, for example, because we can't have a holiday this year doesn't necessarily mean we have two next year uh, and the government makes that money up. Whereas there are some things that if you just can't purchase it today because you're in lockdown, you will purchase it when you're out of lockdown. So there's a whole set of moving uh, feasts in this. Uh, and there'll definitely be a, a pickup in the tax take as we start spending again. But some of that tax is effectively lost forever because we won't go and spend that money. Uh, we won't spend twice as much money uh, next time we're out uh, compared to uh, the situation we're in right now. I think you underestimate the British public and their first trip down to the pub. But <laughs> uh, notice no, I, I didn't say beer. I definitely think there'll be twice as much beer drunk when uh, when unlock comes, but there won't be twice as many holidays purchased. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. So while it's been a bit of a tough time for a lot of fund managers at the moment, some have clearly been looking to the future. Uh, so we've seen quite a few managers launch new funds with a nod towards succession planning, such as Lindsay Train and Evenload. I've uh, got one in, in, in the pipeline. So Ryan's come on to the podcast, uh, given that he, he works in part of the investment team in AJ Bell, to tell us exactly what's going on. So, so Ryan, are we, are we kind of seeing a, a big changing of the guards in the industry at the moment? Not necessarily a changing of the guard yet, but maybe a uh, maybe the, uh, the the troops are on exercises ready for the changing of the guard when that comes. Uh, and this this is just uh, in many respects it's sensible business planning. If you think about a business like uh, Lindsay Train uh, there, and uh, clearly the, the name of the two founders is is in, in the business name, uh, and and the business is synonymous with those two managers. But I think everyone. Uh, understands that they won't be around forever to carry on running uh, running the current funds uh, and they need to look to bring talent through uh, for the future for when those people can step up and uh, and take the place of uh, of Lindsay and train to stick with that example uh, and, and so this is an opportunity for managers to to bring bring along uh, those those younger maybe slightly less experienced managers uh, you know and, and let them cut their teeth uh, really at the uh, the cold face of fund management uh, there, and so yeah, this is this is a common thing that we see, uh, but certainly there seems to be a, a little pickup, I would say, in fund launches that are being run by deputy managers or analysts that were people that were formerly analysts that are, that are stepping up to to run the fund for the first time. So I think we saw this with Fundsmith. 
um, a couple of years ago where they launched the Smithson Investment Trust. And uh, a lot of people are going, well, hang on a minute. Terry Smith is the guy who made Fundsmith famous. What? Why isn't he running this new Smithson fund? But but really, what the, the argument they put across was, well, we, we've got some people you perhaps don't know, but they're all following the same investment process, which we've shown that works. So do, do you find that, Ryan, when, when you have someone new come on for a new product or maybe someone new to take over an existing product, are they always slotting in to, to follow things the same way as it was before? Or do they get free reign to perhaps put their own sort of style? Yeah, I think I think yeah, you have to remember that, that investment houses have uh, have styles essentially that come with with all of their products. And so, if you've got a, an analyst that's maybe worked in the team for a few years, and if we stick with the Linzel Train example, uh, then uh, then James Bullock, who will be uh, running the, their new US fund, has actually been in the business a decade. So this is not a uh, yeah, a new uh, yeah, a new a new fund manager straight out of university that's got no experience. It's a decade of experience uh, here uh, and has been schooled by uh, by Nick Train and uh, and Mike Linzel uh, into the way of thinking, the way of analysing companies and the types of companies that they want to invest in. Much the same as Smithson, as you mentioned at Fundsmith, and so you would expect a uh, a. A continuity in the way that the funds are managed alongside the house style. So, in theory, if you're if you're buying a, a Smithson Investment Trust, you're getting exposure to the same types of companies as if you're buying Fundsmith. If you're buying Linzel Trains New North American Fund, you're getting exposure to the same types of companies you'd find in their UK fund and their global fund. I guess for investors, it makes it a little bit trickier to weigh up because you've got to think about the the newer manager or the less well-known manager and, and their ability to manage funds, but then also the kind of house style and, and how much oversight that better known manager is going to have. So does it make it a bit trickier? Uh, but in some respects, yes. But I think what's really important, I'm going to mix my metaphors and I've probably done it on the podcast before. So forgive me, listeners. Uh, but it what you're buying is what's beneath the bonnet, not the name above the door. Uh, and, and so, yeah, sorry about that. I can, I can hear you laughing in, in there, Laura. But, but I, you know, it's a really important point. It's, it's about you, you're buying a type of company. You're buying a type of investment. Uh, and if it's a Linzel Train fund, it shouldn't matter whether it's Nick Train, whose name's above the door, or it's James Bullock's name that's above the door. And the same with Fundsmith and the same with Evenload. So it's really important to understand the types of companies that are being bought, not simply buying because of the name of the manager who's who's running it. And why do you think there is this kind of bigger focus on succession planning at the moment? Is there something that's sparked it? I don't think so. I think it's it's always been there and, and some fund groups do it better than others. For example, over the last couple of years, Fidelity, one of the biggest fund managers in the world, have been going through a process of appointing co-managers to all of their funds uh, as a way of bringing through um, their, their kind of rising stars in their analyst team and, and, uh, and showing them the ropes as to how they, can, they should manage a portfolio alongside an experienced manager so that when that experienced manager decides it's, uh, it's time to, uh, to put the spreadsheet away and, and, go, and go and sit uh, in their garden and relax with all the fun that comes with, with, the, with the stock market, that they're ready to take over. So I think different firms do this in different ways. It, it's, it's always been there. Uh, but I think 
you know, when you've got big names like Terry Smith, like Nick Train, uh, when they start talking about succession planning, I think it does it does get a lot more headlines than when a business like Fidelity, that's just got so many fund managers, uh, tackles it as part of their normal business planning process. And what happens if 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 you're invested in a fund and there is a change at the top, how serious should an investor um, think about? committing to staying with this fund or, or or let's say that the fund manager went to a different company should they follow essentially follow the money that originally you know has rewarded them yeah i think that that's always a really really difficult question and one that i get asked a lot when i talk to investors um, a lot of it comes down to the style that that fund manager follows uh, and the replacement manager are they going to follow the same style have they got the right experience now, for example, if we use a real life example from just a month ago, Nick Clay, who ran the BNY Global Income Fund, um, left uh, the firm and took three of his team with him. Now, that was one of the funds that was on our favourite funds list. But the, the fact that the manager left with three of the team, we thought the fund uh, would be much weaker without those individuals there because it's such a large part of the team that running the fund that's been removed uh, and therefore, that's one that we took immediately off the favourite fund list uh, there. But there are other instances when the fund manager leaves and maybe their deputy takes over and that's someone that we know well, uh, where we might be very comfortable actually remaining in the fund. And actually, if I could, I could use the same example, actually. Uh, if we stick with the BMY Global Income Fund, that used to be managed by a manager called James Harries uh, years ago. And Nick Clay was actually the deputy. Uh, and I knew Nick very well. Uh, and so when James Harry's decided to leave to go to Troy uh, about f four or five years ago, uh, I was very comfortable staying with Nick Clay running the BMY fund because uh, I'd, I'd known him and met him on a number of occasions. But clearly when he then lead, uh, left a month ago and took three of his team with him, that's a very different situation. So it is very, uh, very specific to each fund as to what the, I think the right course of action should be. So Ryan, while you're here, I wanted to talk about property funds as well. So we obviously saw a lot of property funds, almost all of them, suspend um, as we went into the early stages of the COVID-19 crisis, mainly because the people that were in charge of valuing the properties just felt like there wasn't good enough or sufficient information to give them an accurate valuation. Um, so are things looking any brighter for that sector now? I mean, they all still remain suspended for now, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say, yes, things are looking a lot brighter, but uh, but there is little evidence of that, to be honest, right now. Um, the way these funds work is they have an independent valuer uh, who essentially once a month values all of the properties. But to do that, they need depth in the market. So they need to see other properties be sold to give them a good feel as to what a property is worth. So yeah, an office block in London, um, well, we can have a guess at what it's worth, but what they need to see is transactional volume. So they need to see lots of other office blocks be sold to give them a feel for where the market's at. Now, right now, because the market's essentially stopped, there is no transactional volume at all um, to base these prices on. And at the same time, we don't know the full impact uh, on the economy of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, and so it's really difficult to say what a property is worth. Yeah, if we use the example of a big department store on a high street, well, we've just been talking about retail and the fact that things have moved online. So what is that retail outlet now worth on the high street uh, compared to only a couple of months ago? Well, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess right now. Uh, and the property valuers don't either. 
Uh, and so I think we, we look like we, we're going to be suspended for a, a while longer before we get that transactional volume pick up to give some depth to the market. And of course, remember, when you're buying a building, um, you need to get the surveyors in there to check the building out. You want to go in and view it yourself. Um, these are multi-million pound transactions. Uh, and so these will only really happen uh, when people can visit in person uh, and do a full due diligence uh, on these different buildings. So we are some way away from that, I suggest. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the property sector, is, it's been through a very difficult period because of the retail um, industry going through problems and you've seen property funds that own shopping centres, their valuations fall. But now we've got commercial real estate, like office blocks, you know, are they going to be the next retail? Because if we're all, you know, if, if we're working from home and this becomes permanent trend, um, you know, there'll be reduction in demand for office blocks. And could we be seeing another sort of big drop off in, in net asset value? Ryan, I don't know if you, if you talk to any fund managers in this area, are they really quite worried about what the prospects are like? Yeah, I mean, you, you can see it in the uh, in the results and the comments that are coming out from the REITs. Um, so I think even British Land, uh, in its latest statement, suggested that rental collection from from offices uh, w was potentially going to be a challenge going forward, as much as it has been in uh, in retail. Uh, and and I think if you like like you rightly say, with with everyone working from home, if you extrapolate that out, yeah, and it's always dangerous to extrapolate ten weeks worth of data into a permanent shift in human behavior. So we need to be careful with this. Um, but going forwards, if, you're, uh, if you have an office in the city, in the, the square mile in London, and you've got a thousand desks there, that's going to cost you a huge amount of money. Uh, if you actually think you might only need 500 desks going forwards because you can have lots and lots of your people working from home, that's a massive saving for the business. So you've got businesses that are having a real squeeze on their finances uh, where their profitability is challenged. Well, perhaps one of the easy ways to tackle that is actually to cut your cut your uh, office cost uh, and the expenses that come with it. So I think it is likely uh, that we see lower demand for offices going forwards uh, with companies looking to downsize. Of course, overlay that with companies sadly going bust because of the impact of the, the economic shock it means there'll be lower demand anyway. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a very real issue going forwards. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why the, the property REITs, so the listed property funds uh, that trade as investment trust in a REIT structure, are currently sat at about a 40 to 50% discount to what the perceived net asset value is. So that's telling you that investors don't think the properties are worth as much as uh, they have most, most recently been valued at. Now, that that disconnect isn't seen in the open-ended space. Now, obviously, they're suspended, um, but I think there is a little bit of catch-up to be done when those valuers can get in there and value those properties properly. Uh, you could easily see uh, some falls coming to the open-ended space as well. I thought one of the interesting things that came out from one of the property fund managers that kind of issued an update recently um, was the income aspect too, because we've been talking so much about companies cutting their dividends and that being a big hit to income investors. But actually, um, property funds are saying that there's likely to be a hit to their income as well, because lots of companies are getting rental holidays and rental waivers or maybe have already gone bust and so aren't paying that rent and that, that premises can't be re-rented. So should um, investors be prepared for another kind of income hit there then? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There is a, a, 
when we talk to again some of the property companies, we read the statements from the REITs. They're saying that rental collection during March and April was running at around between fifty and seventy five percent, depending on depending on the sector. Uh, and it just points to the challenges uh, that exist. So again, retailers that have got no cash flow because they've been forced to close, well, how do they pay their rent? Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult. And so they're they're in negotiations with the landlords to defer that uh, where possible. So I think it's, it's highly likely that you could see uh, a fall in income from property funds at around the 20% level uh, over the coming months as they struggle to collect the rent that's due and then can't pass that through uh, in the form of income distributions. Uh, and of course, we know in the long run that the value of property is essentially based on the income stream that it can deliver. So the, the value of the rent uh, that it gets. And if that's much lower, uh, then that makes the ultimately in the long run makes the value of the property lower as well. So I think it's probably worth pointing out it's not all doom and gloom in the property space um because there, there are parts of it where demand is actually quite strong so we, we we had tom walker from schroders on the podcast fairly recently he was he was talking about data centers being the new beachfront property um gp surgeries there's several investment trusts that are that invest in these sort of assets um obviously they're seeing just very sustained demand warehouses that are um helping to store all the goods that we're now buying online, um, even sort of parts of residential property sector and social housing. So if you, if you have property in your portfolio, um, there's definitely, you know, there's alarm bells ringing in part of the market, but um, don't think that there's no opportunities still. You just have to be quite selective, I think. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a very real mix of, of property across the UK, uh, the UK land bank. Uh, lots of the market's made up of offices, as, as you can imagine. But yes, there's plenty of industrial and retail. Uh, things like it's not all doom and gloom for retail supermarkets, uh, for example. And they were in the doldrums a couple of years ago, uh, but, are, but are now looking interesting uh, again. Uh, and that, like you say, healthcare. Uh, so these areas, you know, they, they, they ebb and they, they flow. I, th- I think we can all accept that certain parts of retail on the high street, uh, that, you know, that has, is structurally challenged. Uh, but, but the mix changes and, uh, and distribution centres, you know, Amazon distribution centres, warehousing, that last mile delivery uh, capability uh, becomes even more attractive as we buy more and more of our goods online. So this week, I also caught up with Anand Sambasavan from Primary Bit about how retail investors are getting fairer access to discounted share placings. So a lot of companies actually been raising cash to help get through the crisis by issuing new stock. But principally, that those new shares have just been given to institutional investors. And so rightly so, retail investors think this isn't really fair. So they've been putting pressure on companies to include them as well in fundraising. So primary bid is is historically been used as a platform for very small companies to raise cash from retail investors. But last week it was chosen by FTSE 100 tatering group Compass to help reach the general public for cash. So Anand explains why this could open doors for other big companies to include retail investors in their share placings. So, Anand, thanks so much for joining us. Firstly, what, can you just sort of give us um, some sort of explanation why big companies normally ignore retail shareholders when it comes to raising new cash? Yeah, hi, Dan. Look, I, I think that, that retail investors have been incredibly difficult 
if not impossible to access alongside um, an accelerated book build for companies. It, they've, they've been wanting to, but they've just not been able to. And this is simply um, a, a function of retail being extremely fragmented. Uh, deals are very time sensitive. And there are all of these administrative burdens that go on with taking these orders. So if you think of capital raising uh, and the capital formation process, you know, created all those decades ago, uh, retail, allowing retail investors to participate in these deals was literally impossible. Now, since then, technology has advanced and it is possible today. But so effectively, the capital markets and the capital formation process just hasn't caught up um, with the advance in technology. And, and partly because uh, it's a regulated environment and innovation takes time and deliberation uh, to embrace. Uh, but um, that said, um, you know, I, I think it's about time for an upgrade. Um, and Primary Bid is here to provide that upgrade. Okay, so what, what, I mean, what made Compass want to include retail investors in its big fundraise recently? Look, I think if you just read the RNS and and all the messaging across it, uh, the management of Compass, it's clear that they they deeply care about all their stakeholders. And um, when they ran an accelerated offering, which is the the type of fundraising they chose to do, they actually took the time to um, understand all of the options available to it uh, that it could enfranchise retail shareholders. I mean, historically, it probably would have done a long, uh, painful, document-heavy rights offering. But but there is no time for that in today's world. And uh, they just wanted to get on with it. But they, they said, okay, well, what are the options available to it? Um, now, it helps that primary bid um, has uh, has a technology that works, that's that's in play. Uh, it's fully authorized by the, by the FCA. We are in partnership with the London Stock Exchange and completed 60 deals. Um, so, you know, when Compass... Uh, heard of us, and in, obviously in the background, all the noise that's happening um, at the general meetings and in the press on how um, you know retail investors are just getting uh, extremely angry at being left out. Um, it was it was a fantastic solution for them. Okay, so I, I read somewhere that you you were in talks with Weatherspoon to do something similar, but it didn't actually happen. Is is that true? Or, and if so, well, why look, didn't I, you? I don't want to I don't want to comment on deals that we weren't on, but I think it's fair to say that in the in all of these deals, and in the last weeks, eight weeks, you know, we've seen something like like almost sixty transactions, um, you know, raising close to eight billion sterling. Uh, we were discussed on on many of them, and it was just a point around something new and you know in the heat of a deal you know was there time to investigate it so it was up to us to build the awareness around the product to make sure the ecosystem was comfortable that they understood what we were doing um and and so that next time there was a deal that that they would feel comfortable to take us on so so yes there were transactions um iconic names that came to market that that were considering us um ultimately it it was Compass that 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 took the leap because by then there was enough out there and we'd done enough for to to gain comfort with all the Magic Circle law firms, all the investment banks, uh, the PR firms, the advisors, um, the policy groups, and so on, uh, to 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 make to make sure that all the sort of uh, dotting the i's and crossing the t's were were taken care of before, um, so that when it came to a deal that they were able to execute on it quite quite easily. 
Yeah, and so obviously now, now Compass has shown that FTSE 100 company can sort of embrace retail investors in this way. Are you pretty confident that you're going to see management for other blue chip companies sort of look at what they've done and say, yeah, we will definitely include retail from now on? Well, if our pipeline um, is any indication, then then absolutely. I mean, look, we're uh, we're getting inbounds from from companies across the listed environment, from FTSE 100 down to AIM, um, and we're excited to help them all. And and frankly, why shouldn't they be? You know, it is it's the fair way of doing it. Um, it's incremental, high quality demand. Investors who want to who are loyal and and are buying the shares in the secondary market and holding on to it with a very long-term horizon. It leads to better outcomes uh, for the company, um, um, not notwithstanding just you know deal pricing and so on. But uh, but you know even a fantastic response from the ecosystem. It's the institutional shareholders are supportive, the policy groups are supportive, uh, the retail investors uh, are wanted, and so ultimately. Um, it makes a lot of sense uh, to, to to use it. So I'm not surprised um, at the traction we're seeing on the back of the Compass deal. Great. And then thank you ever so much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. And finally, before we go, I thought it was worth mentioning that the mortgage holiday we talked about on the podcast before has now been extended. So those that listen to that episode will know that there was the ability for people with mortgages to take a three-month break on their monthly payments. Um And that was due to end at the end of June. And it's now the regulator, the FCA, has proposed that it will extend it and give you the ability to take that holiday for another three months as well. Um, It's been incredibly popular so far. So 1.8 million people in the UK so far are taking advantage of it and taking a mortgage payment holiday, um, which is obviously good news for people that have seen their incomes fall and are struggling to make their payments because mortgages are obviously such a big outgoing each month. Um, but I do think it's important that people weigh up the cost of taking an additional mortgage holiday um, if they were going to make use of the extended scheme um, and make sure that they're aware just how much it costs in the long term um, rather than just the savings right now. So that's everything this week. Thank you ever so much for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.